0: Before we take a look at God's word this morning from Philippians chapter 4, it probably bears noting that this is a holiday weekend, Memorial Day weekend, where many of us are remembering loved ones and friends and, and neighbors who have served in the armed forces and who have given their lives for the freedom of our country. And over the course of this weekend, I know um, many will be celebrating and reflecting upon those uh, very realities. And I encourage you, indeed, to do so. Um, It's a reminder to me, even as we think about those who have given lives in the duty of service to the country, uh, that we are every Sunday, in some sense, and in the deepest and maybe most profound sense celebrating a Memorial Sunday, because we are remembering the one who gave his life in service to the greatest freedoms that you and I ever experience. And it is my prayer that in the midst of the sacrifices that have been given at a civil level, that we would remember most deeply and most penetratingly now in the time that's given to us, the sacrifice that was given by the Lord Jesus Christ for each and every one of us. Now, if you have not been with us in our series of the epistle to the Philippians, one of the Pauline epistles, we began this study back in in the end of January, and we are coming quickly to a close. We're in the penultimate message of this study of of Philippians, and today we're back in a section of Scripture that we've been sitting in. We've We've been steeping in like a good cup of tea We've been steeping in, this, in these couple of verses, Philippians 4, 8, 9, and we're trying to draw out of these verses all of the richness that God intends for us right here. And over the last couple of weeks, we laid some foundations looking at these six virtues, which are listed there for us in verse 8. The virtues of truth and honor, of justice and purity, of that which is lovely and that which is commendable. Paul is saying these six virtues, I want you to think on these things. I want you to meditate on them. I want you to ponder them, mull over them. I want you to to chew the cud on these virtues in your mind and get all of the nutrients out of them. Get all the flavor out of it. So that it will feed your soul and begin to change you. That's where we've been over the last... A couple of weeks. And and we've said that these six virtues that are listed in verse 8 are are treated by many scholars, and I think appropriately so, as a way of describing the three ancient virtues that the Greco Roman world would have held dear to, which Paul and the Philippian audience of which he's writing to would have known. Those ancient virtues of truth, goodness, and beauty. You see within these six virtues, three couplets. Truth and honor, really focusing on truth and how we should respect truth. Purity and justice, really focusing on goodness. And then these final two, loveliness and commendability, really focusing on on beauty. Now, last week we focused on truth. We spent all of our time on the foundational aspects of the first two virtues. Today... We're being really bold. We're going to take four of these virtues. We're going to take goodness and we're going to take beauty and wrap up our study of Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Now, as we do this, and even before we read the text, I want you to be thinking about a few things as we read the text and then as we prepare for the message. I want you to see how in goodness there is something that's really beautiful. And I want you to see that in beauty... There's always goodness. And I want you to see that the greatest good and the greatest beauty is found in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the passage along those lines this morning as we explore the richness of what God has for us here in His Word. Let's look together. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. This is God's Word. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The grass withers, The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge in a world where there's lots of sand, lots of shifting sand underneath our feet, and we find it hard to discover a secure place to stand. Indeed, we find impossible within the veil of this world. We have just professed together after the reading of your word that this word is a forever word, that it will indeed stand forever. It is permanent. There is is nothing that can break it. There is nothing that can subvert it. This word is a strong and mighty word, a powerful word that can accomplish and will accomplish all that you send it to accomplish. And that's what we pray right now that you would indeed do through the power of the Holy Spirit. That you would send him to us in great measure. That he would open up with these words from Philippians 4, 8, 9. The hearts of us as people. And we would find ourselves um, in the presence of you, the God of peace. And we would find in so being there with you in that peaceful place... We are right where we need to be. Father, you have made us for yourself. And our souls are restless until they rest in thee. Let us now rest in thee. As we look to this, your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we consider Philippians 4, 8, and 9, and especially these two virtues of goodness and beauty. I want to take some time to just simply look at the words themselves. Do a bit of a a word study with you through Philippians uh, 4-8 specifically and consider what bearing might the words of justice and purity and loveliness and commendableness, what, what might these words have to say to you and me exactly where we sit this morning in Middle Tennessee in 2020. I think that you'll find as we look at these words and as we think about them together, that's what Paul's called us to do, to to really think about them. We're going to try to think about these words and these virtues, the character that he wants us to be shaped into. As we look at them together, we we want to inwardly digest. That's the word of the old Book of Common Prayer, the old Anglican Book of Common Prayer, the prayer to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the word, to take it into ourselves, so that we would find... That this word is more necessary than the bread, than the toast we ate for breakfast this morning. And we would find our souls satisfied by the goodness and the beauty of God revealed in this passage. When Paul says here, I want you to think about whatever is just. you think about whatever is, is just? As he begins to introduce this subject of, of goodness, he introduces it with this word... Just, it might not be the way that you would typically use the word. When you think of the word goodness, you might not say to yourself, the first word that jumps into my mind is is justice. But of course, if you're looking at the Greek, if you're looking at what word Paul is actually employing here, and the range of the connotations that's given by this word that's translated just, you, you would know that this word can actually be translated right or righteous. Right or, or righteous. That, that the kind of goodness, the kind of justice that's being referred to here is the kind, of, the kind of goodness wherein rightness is displayed, both in terms of action and in terms of character. When we look into the New Testament, we see Matthew, of all of the writers, use this word more than any other, especially in the form that this word is given to us. You might recall the section early on in Matthew's gospel where he describes Joseph's character. He says, Joseph, who has just found out that Mary's fiancée is with child, this Joseph being, he says, a righteous man. Some of you may have memorized that, a just man. It's an appropriate translation. Joseph being a righteous man, unwilling to put her to shame, speaking of Mary, Resolved to divorce her quietly. Now the language that Matthew's using there, same word that Paul here is using in Philippians chapter 4, is speaking to the fact that what Joseph is doing is right. His actions are right. But it's also indicating to us that he's not just doing the right thing, but he's doing the right thing in the right way. He's doing it with a, with a heart, with a character that's given... To that which is good, think of it, those of you who have either passed through a divorce or have been on the inner workings of how messy a divorce can be. This situation had all of the makings of the messiest kind of breakups you can imagine. On the way to the chapel, wedding bells ringing for Joseph and for Mary, and he finds she is with child. It would be tempting for Joseph to make an example of Mary. In his anger, throw the book at her legally and, and publicly put her on display with a scarlet A, as it were, for all of the world to see. But that's not the spirit of Joseph, is it? He's one in his resolution to act righteously. Also, he's shielding her from that shame. In his principle of rightness, he is also caring for her and protecting her. He's honoring God and his loving neighbor in the midst of doing the right thing. He is doing the right thing in the right way. Now as Joseph does this and as we consider the spirit of the way this passage is presented to us there in Matthew and what Paul is getting at as we should be thinking about these kinds of things. I hope that you can sort of sit a little bit in Joseph's shoes there and you can say to yourself that would be really hard. That would be really difficult. I would have all kinds of temptations I'd be facing and all kinds of anger and resentment and bitterness. I'd have to deal with and bed down in the midst of being hurt and betrayed in such a significant way. The fact that Joseph could act this way as I think about him, it touches me deeply. It it has a way of moving me when I see the righteousness that he displayed. My heart melts In the midst of this display of of goodness. Well, I would suggest to you that's why Paul pairs this word justice with that word purity. Whatever is just, whatever is pure, Paul says. This this word purity is the Greek word hagnos. From the root hagai, which is to, to be holy, to be uncontaminated, to be undefiled. This, this idea to be holy is to be, is to be set apart. It's a term most often used in the Scripture to refer to God. It's, it's to be one of a kind. It's, it's to be utterly unique. But what's interesting about the word that, that Paul uses, the derivative of that word, is he uses the adjective form here. Now, why is that important? Why these grammar lessons? Well, this is important. The adjective form of the word haggai here, hagnos, literally means the effect that goodness or the effect of holiness, how, it, how, it, how we receive it or how we respond to it. When it's used in the scripture in this form, it's not typically speaking merely of the character, but how that character emanates and how that character responds to those who receive it. The best way of understanding Hagnos is that the experience of being in awe of someone is when you know Hagnos has dawned on you. Now have you ever been in awe of someone? Some of you have probably been watching the Michael Jordan documentary. You know who you are. You're, you remember Air Jordan, right? I mean you go way back with Air Jordan. And you've been walking through this documentary. And I have slowly but surely been watching it myself. And I've been mesmerized remembering how remarkable this man was. This, I mean defying gravity. Uh, sports prowess unlike... We'd seen in, in generations, if ever. It's remarkable, uh, just, just ability and gifting. And then there was a sense in which, when you would see some of those shots, some of those plays, you'd just go, wow. That, that sense of just awestruck by the uniqueness, by the, uh, he's the goat after all, right? He's the greatest of all time it, by the uniqueness of what it is that he can do, what it is that he's accomplished. Some of you are thinking to yourself, I can't stand basketball. I don't know much about Michael Jordan, but you know music, right? Some of you maybe have been listening to Yo-Yo Ma and his songs of comfort that he's been releasing on YouTube. They've been beautiful. I commend them to you if you have not. Maybe you've heard him play that sweet number one of Bach and G Major, and, and you have been raptured. By it. You've been sort of transported by the, by the beauty of it. And you've, you've, you've been in awe of the, the glory of what's there and the musicianship of what it is that's described. That, in a very real sense, is Paul, Paul's word here. When he says purity or holiness, it's the kind of thing that when you come in contact with it, it sort of brings you to your knees in astonishment. But now Paul is not talking about Michael Jordan. And he's not talking about Yo-Yo Ma. He is talking about a personal encounter with holiness with goodness with something that is pure with something that is right that when you see it it becomes so so beautiful to you so captivating and takes you it begins to transform you i love the way cs lewis put it well years ago now in his autobiography surprised by joy i hope a few of you have at least read that book. If you've not, go out this summer, great summer reading, by Surprise by Joy, read it. It's a marvelous little book. At the very opening of the book, probably two or three pages in, he speaks about his nursemaid when he was a young kid. Her name was Lin- Lindsay Endicott. And, and he speaks of her in the most with, with the most fondness. I mean, like more like, like, I mean, it's hyperbole. It's like, it's like glorious language. Like she hovers a little bit above the ground, you know. She's angelic in nature. He literally says, the exacting memory of my childhood cannot remember from her one flaw. Her kindness and her, her gaiety uh, was above any that he can recall. He says, as far as a human being is concerned, she was simply good. Now, some of you, because you're, you're wonderful Reformed Presbyterian types, you're like, well, um, I hate to break it to you, C.S. Lewis, but she's a sinner, right? Some of you have that kind of, kind of moment. You're like, she's a sinner like the rest of us. Let's bring old Lizzie down to earth. She's not really quite how you imagined her. Well, listen, you don't need to school C.S. Lewis on this. Lewis knew that she was a sinner, and, and he's, I'm certainly aware of that his childhood nostalgia has gotten a little bit of him with regards to Lizzie Endicott. But you would be exactly right if you corrected him and you took him, say, to the story of the rich young ruler. And you said, look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, no one is good but God. Lizzie is not good. She is, she is not good. That's what the Bible says. You would be specifically, accurately, doctrinally correct. But you know what? You would entirely miss the point. Because what is Lewis communicating? Lewis is communicating the impression that Lizzie made on him. The personal encounter that he had with someone who was pursuing goodness and righteousness. You know, that word impression is a word we use kind of superficially. Like we want to make our first impression. And it wants to be a good one. We want to go to a job interview. We want to make a first impression. Which we usually mean... I want to present something that I usually am not and try to pull the wool over the eyes of this individual for as long as I can. That's usually how we use the term. But actually in the Greek, the original term with regards to impression is a derivative and is connected to the word character. It means to say that when you have truly developed virtuous character, there has been an impression in the soul. There's been an imprint, a stamp. Something has been sealed on you. You see, Lizzie was making that kind of impression upon Lewis. What was happening for Lewis was, was not, a, not a theological mistake in his describing of Lewis. It was a spiritual recognition of the vision that he received from personally encountering a person who was living in righteousness. If you go back over the course of your life, you'll probably note the fact that there are individuals or Stories or circumstances that lifted or elevated your soul to begin to behold things that are good and holy in a way that actually drew you to love them. Now, educators know this. Parents know this. Uh, how, many, how many times do we say to our students or our children, don't do that, do this. Don't do that, do this, right? And children... Probably do what we tell them not to do, and you know, they probably do the opposite. But nevertheless, we, we try, we say those things, and we can conform for a while behavior because of fear of punishment. But there's a there's a fundamental difference between conforming a will through do's and don'ts and commands and having a will transformed because of the beauty of what is good. The beauty of what is good. What happens when that parent is not there? What does that child do? What happens when that teacher leaves the room? What do those students do? Are they fundamentally at the heart level drawn towards that which is good? Or have they simply been conformed externally because of a context to be forced into doing that which is good and as soon as they can, you know, shake the dust of this crummy little town from their shoes to steal a line from It's a Wonderful Life and go live their life the way that they really want to live it, they will. Lewis is saying he got the taste of goodness in a way that drew him to begin to be attracted to it. You see, what what the Lord really wants out of all of us as we think through that which is true and good and and is beautiful is, is not merely to conform or bend our hearts towards the things that are good and true and beautiful. He wants our hearts to fall in love with those things. To where even if no one's watching, those are the things we do. You see, that's why Paul in this passage, he doesn't stop with justice and purity. But he goes on to that, that next virtue, which he describes as lovely. As lovely. Now, it's interesting, this word, you find it nowhere else in the New Testament. This is part of the reason we know the Apostle Paul is building off of the capital there in Philippi. He's, he's borrowing language that's not usual even in his own list of virtues in the New Testament. You won't find this word lovely anywhere else in the New Testament. You have to go to classical Greek literature. You have to go outside the context of the Bible to even see the range or connotation of what Paul is trying to communicate here. But here's, here's what he's not communicating. He's not merely saying, oh, that's pretty. That's what, he, that's what he's not saying. That's how we usually use the word, right? I was telling the early service. I was out yesterday. It was a beautiful afternoon. Surprising. I thought it was going to rain. I'm glad it didn't. I was out walking in downtown Frank. It was a glorious day. Streets were bustling. They haven't been for a long time. Lots of people out. And, and I had one of those moments that I often have is I kind of turn the corner right by Mellow Mushroom. You know where I'm at? Right by Mellow Mushroom. I kind of turn the corner and I look up down the street and I just, it's It's lovely. Right? It's just the, the street, the architecture, the, the, the whole thing. Like, I just am transported to Mayberry. Like, immediately, when I'm in that spot, and I just think, you know, where's, where's Andy? Where's Barney? I mean, they're around here somewhere. Like, this is the best place to live. Like, I had that moment yesterday. Um, great to see everybody out. And I thought to myself, that's lovely. That, that's not what Paul means here. The, the word, you can see the word love in the midst of lovely. Have you ever really noticed that? The word love is in the midst of, of lovely. The, the term literally means to, to be drawn forward in love. To be drawn forward. It's a compound word, prosphilios. To draw, be drawn forward in love. To, to, to have seen something good and then to have your soul drawn forward in love towards the good. That's what it is. I mean, you know this experience, you know, young man, he, he sees that girl from across the crowded room, right? And she catches his eye and he can't, he doesn't want to be caught looking at her, but he, he's looking. He's looking, he's finding ways to look and he's thinking to himself, i got to meet her, right? I've got I've to meet that girl. It's the beginnings of something, right? Something is stirring. It, it might be love. We'll test it over time. We'll see what happens. If it it continues, if it's really love and it grows in from just, just this general attraction to affection to a deep committed love, a drawing unto the commitment of another, what's going to happen is one day he's going to be standing at the front of this church and those doors are going to open up in the back and she's going to be a vision of beauty. Because the nature of lovely is to draw us into lifelong commitment to it. That this thing now has our hearts. We've been caught by it. Paul says, think in such a way that the good things begin to catch your heart so much that they become so beautiful to you. They become the things that you're attracted to. It's really what you find the psalmist and the prophets and, and even in the historical literature of the Old Testament often reference when it says we worship God in the beauty of his holiness. That's the notion. The beauty of his holiness. That it's become to us a vision. Of exactly what we love and what we want. And what we want to become like. Now when we say this this beauty of, of holiness. This, this turning toward in love. We, we can't stop short of, of this final word commendable. But I must admit when I say commendable. It. After all that we've just said, it felt anticlimactic, didn't it? We went from like lovely, being drawn towards love loving, to commendable. Think on the things that are commendable. And you go like, I commend the book to you. It doesn't feel quite as strong, doesn't feel quite as captivating as all of the rest, which is why when you do a little digging and you realize, and the Apostle Paul uses this term, it's similar to the clauses that he uses after these six attributes when he says, if anything is excellent, if anything is worthy of praise. The idea of commending is actually to be well-spoken or to give praise to something. It is is to open up one's lips to declare the worthiness of something or of someone. It's a spoken reality. It's a word word that's connected to worship. It's a word that's connected to worship. It's, It's exactly what's going on in Exodus chapter 15. You remember in Exodus chapter 15 where Moses, by God's grace through God's power, has just led the people of Israel out of Egypt. They have just crossed through the Red Sea. The horse and the rider have now been thrown into the sea, as the old song goes. The people of Israel have become victorious. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. They're looking into the, to the wilderness. But before they begin complaining, you know, which is really soon thereafter, before all of that mess begins, what happens? Moses pauses and sings. He sings in Exodus 15 a beautiful song of redemption. He sings, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is Like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders. You have led in steadfast love among your people. Whom you have redeemed and guided by your strength to your holy abode. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, your place, O Lord. Which you have made, the sanctuary that you have established. And you will reign forever and ever. Now, what is, what is Moses doing when he sings? Well, I hope he's doing what you do in the midst of worship, where the truth of who God is has registered spiritually to your soul. And the vision of the goodness and the grace of God revealed to you in Christ is now real and alive to your heart. And the only response you know to give as your heart is drawn in love to the one who has loved you so faithfully is to open your mouth and sing his praises. That's what Moses is doing. He has seen the truth of who God is. He has seen the goodness and the power and the glory of God. He has noticed the steadfast love and the redeeming character of his God. And anything could happen at that moment and he would sing. It's the oh, it's kind of the reflex of his soul to sing out in praise to Almighty God by what it is that he has seen the Lord do. You see, this passage, we haven't said this up to now. This passage is not just about thinking, you see. This passage is about worshiping. Because when you think on the things that are true, And you think on the things that are honorable. And you consider the things that are true and honorable in the world that God has made. And you trace those things up to God and His kindness and goodness to His people. When you think on the things that are just and pure in the world and in the Word. And you trace those things to Almighty God as the source and the origin from all of what is pure and all of what is just. When you think on the things that are lovely. And commendable in the world whom you take great delight in. And you trace those things to the God who is ultimately lovely. And the one who is full of praise. What begins to happen is you see the anatomy of a soul in worship. This is the anatomy of a soul in worship. A soul that has been so arrested by the truth. So captivated by the goodness and the glory of God. So drawn in a love, affection and commitment to Him. That all you can do is open up your lips and shout. For this God is a great God who's above all gods, the Savior of His people. What Paul is actually giving to us here is a a spirit and a content and a character of what it means to be a living sacrifice acceptable to God which is our spiritual service of worship. You know, Moses, Moses longed for that. He longed for more and more and more of God. That's what he longed for. In Exodus 15, he's singing and he's praising the Lord. And he's going to see amazing things. He hasn't even seen them in Exodus 15. He's he's not seen manna yet fall from the heavens or water from a rock. He's not seen the Shekinah cloud of God come and dwell in the tabernacles. He will as they traverse in the wilderness. But in Exodus 33, he's interceding on the behalf of the people of Israel. He's speaking to God on the mountain there, Mount Sinai. And he says to God, I know your name. You've revealed your name to me. I've seen seen your power and your wonder. I just have one more request. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now what Moses is asking for there... Is to see God in the fullness of his essence. To see God unmediated, unveiled, with no shield or or protector. He's asking for the boldest vision of the glory of who God is, his goodness, his truth, and his beauty. He wants to, he he has tasted it and he wants more of it. All he wants is more of his God. And as he's in that moment, we often misconstrue the, the language of the passage. God doesn't say, no, you can't have it. That's not what God says. God says, if you were to see my face, you would die. You can't handle unmediated glory from me. You're not in a condition to be able to handle the fullness of the vision of my goodness and of my beauty. It, in the midst of utter holiness, those who are wicked would immediately die on the spot. I don't know what that moment was emotionally for Moses, but it, I can't help but think in some way it must have been disappointing. Maybe disappointing to know that he can't see God in that way, and maybe disappointing to learn it's because of who he is as a person. It has nothing to do with who God is, it has to do with who he is. In that moment, a conundrum is given to us in the text. It's a, it's a conundrum that we face, it's a challenge that each of us face. The one thing that you and I need more than anything is a vision of who God is. And the one thing that we can't see. Is the face of God. We've been made to live, as the Puritans like to say, corum deu, before the face of God. And yet, not a one of us can live before the face of God. That's the conundrum of the text. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the ache, in some ways, within your own soul, isn't it? You, you may not identify it as that. You may identify it as, I really need a girlfriend or a new car, or I just, if I could just go on vacation, I'd be fine. But as soon as you get all of those things, the longing doesn't go away, does it? You just go to something else. It's the next thing. I had a friend recently tell me, he said, the only way I get through life is by looking forward to the next thing. How many of us are like that? By looking forward to the next thing. There's actually truth in that, my friends. We just want to tweak the language and then tweak the vision. We want to look forward to the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing. The thing that every longing and desire in your heart is ultimately pointing to. And why in this life you're never fully satisfied, even in the moments where you're most content. And if you are most content in those moments, just give it a moment. You won't be. And immediately you'll begin to desire something else. And all of that is a clue. Because if you see a desire that's embedded within you that this world can't satisfy, it's a clue that you are made for another world. The, t- the text is communicating that to us. It's telling us with regards to everything that's lovely and good and commendable in this life, it doesn't ultimately or fully satisfy us. And this challenge of needing to see God and can't see God is right at the crucible of our lives. Which is why. When we can't build a bridge to God, God in His kindness builds a bridge to us. Moses, you can't see me and live. So I will come to you in a form where I'm veiled, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. As, interestingly, in Exodus 33, the word is goodness. As my goodness passes by, as my goodness passes by, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. Now you do realize that that's nothing more than a picture of who Jesus is. He is the very goodness of God. He is the truth of God. He is the beauty of God. He is the rock of which we are cleft. He is the one who has come from on high in love to us. From the Father, the one who has given to us a sight, a face to who God is. If you have seen me, the scripture says, you have seen the Father as Jesus recounts. In the midst of that incredible promise, Jesus is coming to remove that which keeps us from seeing the face of God. That's what he's come to do. He's come to remove the reasons why you can't be before the face of God. And you know how he does it. When on the cross, he receives from you and me all of the guilt and the punishment of our sin. And in the moment of all the wrath and the judgment of our sin is coming down upon him, he, the one who's always been before the face of God, who's always been quorum deu. In that moment has the face of God taken away from him. His own father is hidden from him. And he experiences the reality of our sin on our behalf. Drinking it to the dregs. Satisfying all that kept us from the face of God. He lost as it were in that moment on the cross the face of his beloved father. And opened up for every one of us a pathway in which we can now behold the face of God. Indeed, is that not our future friends? 1 John 3, 1 through 2. See what kind of love that the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God of God. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's John's ultimate looking forward to. It's it's not a vacation at the beach. It's the ultimate comfort and rest and peace that comes in the moment where we behold what our hearts has been made for and are loved and can love in the way that we so desperately need. We will see Him as He is. And so it is the prayer, I do believe, and appropriate to end on a song, a song of worship as we consider the truths of this passage. Oh, haste the day when faith shall be sight. And the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. And the Lord who right now reigns in heaven shall descend. And we will say in a way that we have never been able to say. With a depth that we have never been able to say it. We will say it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Friends, do not suppress The longings and the desires that you find embedded so deeply in your heart. Don't become cynical about them to say, there's just nothing in this world worthy of these desires. I'll never be satisfied and become mealy mouthed about always getting to the end of a pleasure and finding there's an end. If you trace that pleasure as a clue to the adoration To the one who is God, you will find yourself not looking forward to the next thing. You will find yourself being conditioned to look forward to the ultimate thing. And in that moment, you are beginning to be prepared for the life that is to come. For John tells us, it doesn't yet know what it is it will be like when he appears, but we know we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Therefore, we purify ourselves as he is pure. In looking to that end, we grow in the truth and the goodness and the beauty of who it is that God has made us to be. Friends, put your hands to that plow and find that there is happy labor. For even in the midst of the courts of the Lord, where there is a worship in the splendor of His holiness, we find there is hope everlasting. Though the world may disappoint, the world to come will not the saviors of this world will fail the great savior will not the Lord Jesus on the throne for you today the Lord Jesus coming back again to retrieve you his bride the Lord Jesus the purity of goodness and the most beautiful thing we've ever seen Father in heaven we would ask that you would inscribe impress these truths and realities upon our souls We would ask, Lord, that you would live in us in the light of this glorious portrait of grace. That this this truth and this reality wouldn't, wouldn't just be in one ear and out the other. Or this beholding of the glory of who Christ is wouldn't fade quickly. But that it would sit in us. It would stick with us. It would be to us a vision. A vision on which to live. Lord, you know right now, each and every one of us, what it is that we need. And so, Father, we simply entrust the work of your Spirit now to mediate these truths to us and to change us. Purify us as He is pure until the day that we see Him face to face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.